0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. And I'm so pleased that you've all jumped on to join us again. I have some pretty exciting news for you. I want to offer everyone in the Challenges That Change Us community a free workshop on personality and performance I'll pop the link in the show notes where you can jump on and book your spot, but just know that there are limited spaces, so it's going to be first in best dressed. This workshop is for anyone looking to understand what makes them tick and unpack what drives and motivates people around them. All right, this week is a big one. You know I don't shy away from a meaningful, robust, raw conversation, and I hope that this is the first of many around the topic of childhood sexual assault. We will be talking a little bit around this in the introduction. So just look after yourself and keep yourself safe. Today, I'd like to introduce Virginia Tapscott. She has launched a podcast called My Sister's Secrets, which we will hear about throughout this episode today. And I want to encourage all of you to go on and have a listen to this series. Virginia lost her sister, Alex Tapp, who died alone in a hotel room at 32. She was haunted by horrific sexual abuse by two trusted family members. Virginia herself is a mother and a journalist who set out on a mission to uncover the truth. Where was everyone? Why did no one speak up? Why do we still protect the abusers? Virginia sums it up when she says, my sister was abused, so was I. She's dead, I'm speaking up. Time to end the silence on sexual violence. Why is sexual assault still a taboo topic in Australia? Almost 2 million Australian adults experience sexual assault from the age of 15. And last year there was 31,000 sexual assaults reported in Australia. And these stats are from the ones that we know about. They are not okay. These statistics are not okay. Sexual abuse is in every community. It is in every town across this country. It has no borders. To layer this conversation a little bit more, I want to let you know that I also experienced sexual assault when I was five years of age by a family member. It impacted me for decades. Smoking, drinking, self-destructive behavior and an inability to be loved or to feel love. I tell you this. Because I stand here today in a place where I can truly say that I feel healed and that this hideous abuse does not impact me every day of my life. I spent years working in therapy and I attended sexual assault survivor groups in my 20s and I've told many, many friends and family. But the one thing that I wish I knew as a child was that you can grow up and make it. That you are not a product of your abuse and the experiences you have as a child. This is why I tell you my story, because I want you to know that you are not a product of your abuse. It happened to you. It is not you, and you can heal. You can live a life of joy without shame. You can learn to trust again, and you can fly. Please look after yourself throughout this episode. If you at any stage need or want to talk to someone, please make sure you do. This podcast deals with sexual assault, child sexual assault, and suicide. If you want to talk to someone, call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 13114. This is a story about Virginia and her sister, Alex. So I'd like to welcome Virginia. Thank you so much for giving up your time and coming on the podcast challenges that change us today. That's all right, happy to be here. For those listening, it's it's really funny when Virginia first hopped on, she's got this white shirt and it's got like all this fluff around it and I was thinking, what is that? Has she got a collar or is it like, you know, um, I don't even know how to explain it, but then she mentions to me that she's got a little baby on her chest. You So you've got a little six-month-old on your chest?
1: Yeah, this is Tully. He doesn't like it so much in his cot, so he, I carry him a lot, but it's not like this forever. They just yeah. sort of um, grow up and then start crawling and walking around. And I'm happy to do it for him. This is our first baby on the podcast. So welcome, Tully. <laughs> <laughs> and is this your third baby?
0: Um, fourth. Fourth. What's the age yeah. brackets between yours? Uh, six, four,
1: two, and six months.
0: Oh my God, you must be so busy. <laughs> that's such a challenging time. I remember when our youngest got to about three. It kind of that's when we came up for air, but you're right in the th- thick of it my god Mm. no sleep are you getting any sleep at night not a great
1: deal oh it just feels like normal though (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's because you know you're no different right for the last six years you've just been in this constant yeah. state of um fatigue yeah so virginia i really love to start the podcast with a couple of get to know you questions they're totally random questions the first one is if you were to use an animal to describe yourself what animal would that be and why like what characteristics of that animal makes you think that that would be what you would use
1: i think i would be a dog That's the only animal I reckon I'd really relate to in the sense that they're pretty energetic, looking for something to do. I chase my tail a bit most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And would you have used a dog to describe your
0: personality before? You had kids or is that just since you've been a mama for?
1: Oh, no, I'd say before as well, yeah. Always been busy and on the go? Yeah, I'd say so.
0: Yeah. And the other question I love to ask is, did you have a favourite place or a favourite room when you were growing up as a child?
1: Yeah, it's, my favourite place is the same still. It's a little coastal town north of Coffs Harbour called Wugulga. Yeah. Yeah, my nan had a holiday house there when we were growing up. Yeah, we'd be there every, some holiday.
0: I can imagine it's starting to change over the years. It used to be this sleepy, tiny little town. Is it still? I mean, I haven't been there recently.
1: Have you? Yeah. No, it has changed a lot, but it still does have that quality of being 15 years behind Byron Bay sort of thing. And I think a lot of people are looking for that now.
0: And Virginia, you have, do you know how I found you was I was doing research on podcasts and I was having a look at all the different ones. And I just happened to stumble across your podcast, My Sister's Secrets. And that was when I reached out because I am so passionate and, and the listeners may not know this, but my reason, my why in life is to try and stop family sexual violence. If I could change one thing in this world, there's many things I'd love to change. But if I could only pick one, it absolutely would be stopping putting an end to family sexual violence and I came across your podcast and was blown away with the courage that it would have
1: taken to speak out like that. How long ago did you do your podcast? We worked on that last year for the whole year yeah pretty much on and off interviewing people that I sort of wanted to just go back in time and retrace our steps so yeah it was it was a year pretty solidly pretty stressful
0: yeah wow and then because I didn't realize it was so recent
1: when did you launch it it launched in January this year yep on the 21st oh
0: well for any of the listeners that haven't been on to listen to that it's my sister's secrets great podcast and hopefully after listening to you talk today virginia it might might get them more to jump on and have a look because i think you know as i've heard you say in many many different whether it be in your podcast or when you've spoken on other people's podcasts is we need to stop the secrecy and and you know stop the shame so speaking out is one way that we can start to
1: make a difference in the world around family sexual violence Even if you're not ready to speak, a good place to start, because I know a lot of people might not be at that stage. Like, it took a lot of people to die for me to be able to be public about our family sexual abuse, if you know what I mean. So, there may be people in different positions in their recovery and, you know, with people living perpetrators and things like that, that they're not ready to speak. And listening to these conversations and how they happen. Can be a really helpful starting point, I think, just to be like, well, this is what it sounds like in reality Mm. when these conversations are happening, and you get used to that idea, I guess, and also to understand that the
0: conversations don't necessarily run smoothly. You think you're going to have a conversation, you're going to talk to someone about, and then all of a sudden, someone can shut down, or they can get angry, or like it's not, it's not smooth sailing. It's not as simple as making a decision that you want to have a. want to talk to someone and then going and having that conversation and thinking that everything's going to be okay. I wish it was, but unfortunately it's not.
1: Yeah. I think most predominantly in my experience and in the making of the podcast is people shock you with how much they are actually willing to talk to you. If you're coming to them to have a respectful, genuine conversation to aid in recovery, most people in my experience, and I know this is, you know, there's gonna be a whole heap of different situations, but I was overwhelmingly surprised at how forthcoming people were, you know, because you have this part of you that's just really fearful that someone will shut you down, someone will get angry, someone will be, you know, try and discredit you in your experience. But yeah, I just wanted to get that message out there as well that people might surprise you. If you're coming to the table, you've just got to keep the respect in the conversation. It's an information-finding mission for me, for my recovery, and by and large people were more than happy to help with that.
0: And so tell us a little bit about why you started the podcast in the first place.
1: Well, we lost my sister to an accidental drug overdose We'll never know how accidental it was. It was hard for the coroner to say. But following that, mum and I just really felt like enough was enough. You know, you go through enough, something comes along and hurts you like that and you just think, what are we all doing? Why are we all still protecting these people? When look at the devastation, look at this life that's been lost due to people not talking about things and people not feeling safe to speak out to aid in their own recovery and so mum and I I wouldn't have been able to do it unless I had the support of my mum which is I feel a very rare thing for the parents in this situation to be supportive of me talking of you know someone speak being public about it because her role in everything has been so heavily scrutinised and she's copped a lot, but she's has had the courage to own her mistakes and to own them and be public mm. about them in the name of change for, like, the daughter that she lost. So, you know, everyone realises that, that that's too late now for Alex and we all have to live with that pain. But, you know, mum and I are still affecting positive change by now speaking about it so that was why we decided to do this podcast where we went back to the beginning and just asked why like how what happened you know why was everyone so silent why didn't weren't these people held accountable why didn't anyone say anything and really dissect that and talk to people who were there and just you know with respect just ask them like so why didn't you say anything? What was going through your head then? It's like a kind of moral paralysis in some ways, but it's also the the responsibility to not sexually offend lies with individuals as well. Like you can't sort of shift the blame. So much has happened since the 1990s in terms of protecting children and informing children and adults and knowing what the best way to minimise harm after something has happened and people just having the courage to address things of a sexual nature, even if it is perverted, has to do with your private area and sex organs. Like I think we're all a little bit more like, come on, this is something we need to talk about. Whereas when we were young, it was very much, you know, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about sex. It's not a positive thing to talk about yeah so mum and I wanted to change all that by having this conversation
0: and I think you make such an important point there around the conversations with kids as well I mean there was a lot of points in that but particularly around having those conversations with the kids are they uncomfortable they might be like we're just learning how to have those conversations but I talk to my friends all the time about that I'm like we know that sexual abuse starts at a really young age for many really long i've worked with kids that have been assaulted before they were even one you know and that's not that's not as common but we know that kids are being assaulted at three four five six and if we're not having the conversations then we can't help protect them around that
1: space i read on a because i've looking and searching and digging for resources to help me navigate this now with my own children and um i read on a government resource a pdf that you should start talking about it like a good five or six years before you think there is any chance that like a kid in the playground or that your child will come across these questions themselves because by Mm -hmm. then they'll be bigger and they'll be more guarded they'll have already learnt that maybe we don't talk about these things because you didn't get in there when they were still forming their ideas around do we talk about our sex organs, do we talk about our penises, like is this okay, what are we doing here, you've lost that thing and, and it's so hard, it is so hard because well, I am conditioned to not talk about it, to shut it down, to just be like, whoa, stop that, don't touch that.
0: I don't know for you, Virginia, but my, like for me, definitely with my, I've got three young girls and even last week I was having a conversation with my eight-year-old and I i was thinking in my head, God, I hope she doesn't go and have these conversations in the playground at school because there was almost like I'd be embarrassed that she's got so much information in this space. Mm-hmm. And then I had to recheck myself and think, no, I wish more kids in the playground understood mm-hmm. this. And and I think that I'm like spent years working in the sexual assault space and I still got that reaction of I'd be embarrassed if my child went and spoke about it. I'm like, how? Like how is that even possible?
1: Yeah, and I think the important thing though here is she got that information from you and then she went to the playground. Yes. We want the guidance of parents yes. who are informed every step of the way. You don't just get to be 18 and understand all the nuances of how we should behave sexually without some guidance and, you know, I think that's part of the reason that we do develop perversions is that the lack of guidance, just the, okay, we're not going to talk about that so work it out for yourself sort of thing. Mm.
0: And it's almost like if we leave the conversations too late, they become super awkward.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's getting in early and it's, it was way earlier than I actually thought would be recommended but it was this you know it was this health Mm. department resource and I'm sure that they've got research and all of the things to back it up and it was um it was quite a lot earlier than I had well my oldest is six right and we are just like on a freight train here like whistling into it (laughs) and I just was not I was not prepared for that and I think
0: too, there's also that fear that if we talk to our kids about it, are they then going to go and act on it? Mm. I think that that's often where that fear comes from from parents.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Are we exposing them to a world that then they're going to go and do something? Yeah.
1: Well, they're going to go and do something anyway. <laughs> Eventually. Mm. Which I mean, and this is—I have to tell myself this. Like, I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm saying. You've got to talk about it. So what else I've noticed is like I'm having these experiences where like nothing's wrong or anything but we've just gotten into subject matter that I was not prepared for but, you know, in hindsight, completely natural. Like of course you're going to wonder about what is going on here with your bits and stuff. Like parent to parent, people don't have these conversations. It's all very much like I'm definitely not telling anybody about, like, the only other parents I've ever connected with on this subject matter are people who I've been talking about who are like survivors of sexual abuse, who I'm just working with for <laughs> other reasons. And we get onto this topic of, you know, what is the best way to guide your children through this? That's the only way I've ever gotten onto the topic. Like, it's Not something that's generally discussed. Talked about. No,
0: not at all. And I was thinking too that for me talking to my girls, I had a lot of trouble explaining what sexual assault is if they don't know what sex is. So there's actually a step before it, right? You've got to be having conversations around body parts and sex before you can even have a conversation with them that there's going to be, otherwise you're trying to have this conversation about, oh, someone might touch you here or touch you there and it might feel uncomfortable, but they don't actually know what that means. So they, you know what I mean? Like they've got to actually have some concept, whether you can show them, I don't know, we're we're from the country. So it's a lot easier for us because the cows in the paddock and you can be like, that's sex, you know, (laughs) it looks different in adults, but that's the, like you can have conversations around it or this is how babies are born. Like these are how the chickens are or, you know, there's a rooster and there's a hen. So I sometimes think that's one of the great things about animals. It, it can start those early conversations to make them accessible for when you're ready to go in deeper
1: and have the next conversation. Yeah, it's in nature, which is a great way place to start because it's natural. It's in nature. It's, it's a natural thing. This is all natural. But if you're having trouble with, like, yeah, ways to... Approach the topic and help your like equip kids with I guess the knowledge to be aware of what's okay and what's not I've have found is just the talk about just the consent material mm. so they don't really need to know in the beginning like what what sexual acts are that they should be watching out for they just need to know that like if you don't want to kiss Aunty Sally you don't have to And nobody can make you. So Mm. if something is happening to you that you don't want to be happening, then that's wrong and you can come to me about it. It can be like if you don't want to hold that kid's hand in the playground, you don't have to and nobody can make you do that. So if that's happening and you don't want it to be happening, you can come to me for help. So it translates Mm. if it becomes something sexual. Yeah,
0: and that you already have that open opportunity for conversation. They know they can come to you. They know that you'll believe them. They know that there's a space where they can have that conversation.
1: Yeah, because I started out with um, my kids just trying to be casual about sex organs like penises and vaginas. But then I I found that, like, maybe it was a little too casual and they weren't distinguishing that this is actually quite a special area, okay? So we don't just treat it like we treat our arms. Yes. And – other people can't just treat it like you treat your arm. So then we had to sort of highlight that this was a special area. It's very sensitive and it's for just for you. It's for you and, you know, you're the boss of what's happening here. So it's just such a learning curve and I don't know how other people navigate it without talking to other parents or going digging through the internet like I do for resources, asking my psychologist for resources about this. Like you have to be really wanting to know and wanting to learn how to guide your kid. Like it's not just something you inherently know, I don't think. And it's also a lot easier to not go
0: digging and to not have the conversations. Like that's the easier option, but it doesn't make it the right option. Yeah. This is the conversation I thought we'd be having at the end of the podcast, not at the beginning. (laughs) I thought I thought we'd end up talking about your story and then come into like you know how are we doing it as parents, but it's such an important conversation to be having around that, and especially like I've got three girls, you've got four kids, and I think the message I'm getting
1: here is we're both still trying to work it out right. I think it's harder if you have a history of sexual abuse i I think that is probably right, like it's oh, there's a whole raft of emotions sometimes, mainly anxiety when I'm trying to navigate this area. Mm. I'm hoping that for the general population, they're a little bit, it's easier for them, they're a little bit more, you know, not having such emotional reactions, able to be more positive about it. But my suspicion is that most people in our generation were raised in not a very sex-positive sort of way.
0: And a lot of people have experienced sexual abuse. Exactly. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about your story? I mean, it's, it's always a challenge to try and go back through such a complicated and complex story in such a short time, but I think it would be really valuable for our listeners to hear what your journey's been like, where it started, how you've gotten to where you are today, what has changed since that podcast has come out as well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if we start back at the
1: beginning We grew up on a farm in northwest New South Wales So, you know, all fairly normal from the outside You know, like, it was a lovely place to grow up We did lots of cool stuff Which I think sometimes for people who are victims of sexual abuse Or any kind of, you know, violence and things Makes it easier for you to, like, disassociate from that you're just like, but I have such a nice life and like you know, by and large everyone's really nice to me and we do heaps of cool stuff. And for ages I just was able to do that. I was just able to be like, Yeah, that one that thing happened. I don't really know much about it or how I feel about it. But I'm just gonna move on from that because look at all this other nice stuff that's happened in my life. And I mean, my recollection is difficult because Like I'm not sure of my age. I'm pretty sure it was before I started school because I think my older sister was at school on the particular day that I remember, which is why she wasn't, you know, present. And, yeah, I just remember I was playing my Game Boy at the kitchen table and my step-grandfather was there. I'm not sure if he just came in and sat down or if he was always sitting there. He was quite old at this stage. And, you know, my memories are just of my nan, like, looking after him. He didn't say much, he didn't do much, he was just there and I don't even know if he said anything or if he just sort of patted his lap to like for me to hop up there and I was just like, "Guess okay, I'll just play my Game Boy and sit on your lap and, um, yeah, next thing he's just putting his hands in my knickers and what I later understood to be like masturbating me. But at the time I just didn't know what you know, you four. Like, you've just got no idea. You just know that it's uncomfortable yeah. and that you don't want it. And like, I just remember my heart just, I was getting like beating really fast. Like I couldn't play the game that I was playing on the Game Boy anymore. It was like Mario or something where you're jumping on clouds. And I wasn't like, my fingers weren't working properly because I was, I guess, kind of panicking about what was happening. And then, Nan just walked past the window and has like dropped her basket of washing that she's been doing and seen what's happening and she's come in and she's like stopped it and she's lifted up his arm and sort of hit it. And I don't really remember what happened after that. That is the only instance of like explicit detail that I remember in making the podcast. We did find that there were other instances that people had witnessed that I like more my nan had witnessed and she told a really close friend about that I never remembered. And they were in bed in the bedroom at night when my nan wasn't around. And
0: that's really common, isn't it? It's very, very common for someone to have fragmented memories. And I think that's what makes it so hard, right? Is that there's these blotches of time that are either forgotten or it's blurred or you kind of don't and they're asking when you when it gets all bought up, it's like, well what happened and when did it happen and in what order? And it's like, you're Mm. gonna ask any four year old what order that happened in. Like
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know why people struggle with this so much, to be honest. Like we all have bad memories. Everyone has a bad memory. You try and not think about it. You try and forget it. I don't, even people who haven't experienced Mm. sexual abuse, I, I just want to put to them that like your recollection of bad things is something that you try not to think about. You know, that by its very nature makes it a memory that I guess either over time becomes fragmented and you're not really sure However in saying that I remember that instance in very detailed which I think is a different trauma response as well. I don't have intrusive flashbacks about that which is very lucky for me because like I sort of you know I I remember it I know what I know what happened but like it's not in, an intrusive memory which is the case for a lot of people mm. who've been through sexual abuse and I know that that scenario and the scenario in the beds and the touching I'm fairly certain I asked my sister was there ever any penetration and I'm fairly certain that she said no it was this predatory masturbation that he would just come and inflict on her most of the time she was a bit older she got older and he got older and she started hiding from him and I remember that too but I remember not really having much context for that like not really understanding, like I can remember thinking that it was a game because we used to hide from my nan's cat too because the cat was a bit psycho and used to like jump out from under furniture and get you. And I just remember like it it was in the same box as that for me. Like I was that little, hiding from grandad, hiding from the cat. It's all, you know. And
0: that's your sister's way of protecting you.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, she's done an amazing job but I think the difference between Alex and I is her her abuse was like repeated over and over again, like chronic. So I think that also can be a lot more difficult to recover from than um, even say like, I've got an isolated incident basically that I can remember. And I know a lot of people, you know, think they're like, oh, wow, your nan gave him a smack. Like, isn't that ridiculous? But in a child's mind, there was a level of retribution in that. There was a very obvious display of he's just done the wrong thing. And it was quite confronting, Mm. wasn't it? Because Nan smacked her husband, basically. And in a child's mind, to me, that was a very clear, oh, well, she had my back there. So, she stopped it Mm. she's saying his behavior is not okay yeah and she really clearly signaled that that wasn't okay I mean as much as everybody looking back on that now is like what the fuck were you doing like you should have left him or reported him to the police or you know he should he should have been in jail like all well and good to have that position from hindsight where all you know a lot of time has passed but I think In terms of my recovery, there were definitely a lot of things that happened that were to my advantage in that, which I've you know, I'm guess I'm 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 counting myself as lucky in that sense. But I don't think a lot of the time my sister didn't have that. I'm not sure if she ever had that. I don't think she ever had my nan come along and be like, Oh, whoa, that's not that's not okay. I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't think she ever got that explicit display of That's wrong. Don't do that. Did you
0: speak to your sister after this happened? Like were the conversations started early between you two that it was
1: going on? Can't remember. I don't remember talking to her as a child about it. Yeah. I I just remember, I don't even remember her telling mum, but she did. She told Mm. me that she told mum and that was when we think it all stopped. There's a lot of ifs here we don't really know and we still don't. I mean, mum says that's when it stopped because, you know, we wouldn't have gone and stayed with them and all sorts of things like that. But, yeah, then you get onto to this issue and I think it was something that I didn't know I needed answers about until a lot later in life but I just needed to ask mum, you know, why did you handle it that way in, in a sense. As an adult, you mean, asking mm. her
0: as an adult to adult?
1: yeah. And I think a lot of survivors carry, maybe they're not aware of it, but questions that they have for people that were around that they really want to be like, why did you handle it like that? And explain to the people that were there how it impacted them and how they feel it should have been handled. And that in itself is a really great step to recovering and actually letting go of anger because, you know, no one's, we're not robots like we do fucked up things and we have to live with that but if we can all sort of talk about that and you do have to have a degree of empathy with the people who were there trying to deal with this mess okay of somebody behaving in a horrific way and you've got little kids and you're not sure what to do you're not equipped with you know the knowledge that we have now and the research that we have now. The research that we have now about the long-term impacts of child sexual abuse, those longitudinal studies started when my sister and I were children. So we didn't have the results. I mean, a lot of people might say it's instinctive, you know, you just stop it and you, like, get them thrown in jail and throw away the key. I just think that's a really simplistic, maybe helpful for some people way of looking at it, but it's such a complex issue. It's so nuanced. And that's what we found with the podcast, and that's why I was able to let go of so much of that anger that I didn't really know I was living with, and that those just those questions of why did she did she stop it? Did Nan know that it was going on and not stop it like and the the more you know, the less you've got to be unsure about and just wobbly in the universe about you've got those like you get more facts around what happened, and you can say right, well, I know what happened, I know why she thought she was doing the right thing at that time. I can understand what she thought. I realise it was wrong for me and my sister, but I can empathise with her.
0: It sounds like for you it was really important to know why people did what they did, even more so, and correct me if this is wrong, even more so than the actual act of what happened. For some people they want to know exactly what happened, when, how many times, but for you it sounds like it was really important to know where was everyone and did people try and do something about it, did they not,
1: did they hear us? You know, what happened once they got told? Those kind of questions. But isn't that the whole overarching, I don't know, I think so much of the trauma from sexual violence are those questions. I mean, the act for sure, yeah, that is yeah. traumatising. But I think so much of the context is traumatising as well, the not knowing, the feeling of people not having you back of being sort of abandoned, of people being complicit, which you know they're not, Mm -hmm. but that is the feeling, is that people were complicit. And I think making the podcast and talking to my nan's nan's past, since, since past, and talking to my nan's really good friend and talking to mum about it, I know that nan was put in a terrible position that really deeply distressed her. And her response to that, a trauma response, was to pretend it wasn't happening okay like the 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 people who are they're they're secondary like they're almost secondary victims they're like holy shit I have brought this guy into the family and he's doing that and that is just too much for me I've got to put that in a box I cannot deal with that and sadly you know it's to the detriment of the children that were involved which is my sister and I but I understand that as a trauma response now.
0: And I think, you know, the other thing that I'm listening to as you talk is it's something that I used to talk a lot about in the counselling room was, you know, the act itself is like a third of it. There's a third of how people respond to you when you tell them or your experience in the world and then there's a third is how you integrate it into your world, you know. And I think that that, like when you think about trauma, there's like three different components and if one of those components Uh, um, Like, for example, if you go to tell someone about the abuse and they don't believe you, Mm. like – it is so much harder so to damaging. come in and do the therapy work if you first tell someone and you're not believed. So, you know, that, I guess that's really important to take away from this is if someone comes to you and tells you, just believe them. If you do mm. nothing else yeah. in that initial response, just believe. You can have an adult conversation later or you can ask the questions about, you know, what do we
1: do with this or, Absolutely. or you know,
0: all your questions. But in that very first moment, believe.
1: Absolutely. And mum did. There's no question about that. Mum knew immediately that she was telling the truth. And your mum believed, and that's because she also
0: experienced abuse at the hands of your um, step-grandfather, didn't she?
1: Well, it was widely known that he was, um, I guess what the term that people use is sleazy with women and that nobody sort of realised that that translated to children and potentially it didn't translate to children until later in life where your opportunity to actually get at women your age or mature age women is produced. So your predatory behaviour that was directed previously at mature age women, your only people you've got access to now are little kids. So I think mum lost her dad when she was 11 and I think it was a few years after that that my nan started, you know, going out with our step-grandfather and mum just remembers being like a teenage girl around the house and just being like, touched inappropriately in passing and learning very early on that she was just going to stay out of his way, you know, not be alone with him, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, which is awful. But again, you're like, oh my God, but my mum's married this man. Now I can't tell her that he's just awful. You know, everyone's protecting people that they love essentially And that's again what happened when she found out he was sexually abusing us is on one hand you've got you're about to devastate your mum's life and on the other hand you've got your kids there that you're like well I'm not even sure if my kids want me want to be public about this they don't know they don't understand like will they get to 10 or 12 years old and resent me having taken them through to the police station and through the courts where in that time it may not have been a good outcome for us. He may not have been convicted. We may have had a hostile Mm. experience in the courtroom. You know, there were so many factors that you couldn't control. And like you said before, people come up at a lot of the time, and especially under duress in stressful situations, just the path of least resistance, which, you know, unfortunately isn't best Mm. for the recovery of abused children. But, For people who, you know, mum's lost her husband a couple of years before, she is probably still struggling. And I just, you know, this is very specific to our situation, all of these things—that's what we've got you on for—and I think you know we can
0: try and say this happens with sexual assault, but it is so unique to every single situation, mm. and it's really complicated. It's not a simple road for the people that experience, for the anyone that has someone come forwards and tell them about it, for the perpetrator. Like it's not—it's really complicated, which is why it's so challenging and difficult. And I
1: think a lot of you know when Scott Morrison said oh, you know, I had to think about Brittany Higgins as a father, like if it was my daughter, how would I feel? And, you know, as much as we all, everyone jumped up and down and was saying, well, that's awful, you should have just, you know, responded initially up front, it doesn't matter, you know, that you're a father or whatever, it's just being a human response. But empathy and putting ourselves in situations and imagining ourselves in situations is just such a key, key part of the human existence and how we navigate other people and other people's emotions and how things might be impacting other people. And so I wouldn't want people to, like, throw out your empathy. Like, so I put myself in my mother's position and I imagine what it would have been like, and there is no easy answer. It's just, to put it bluntly, really fucked up. And same with my nan, like you put you, you put yourself in that position, really, and I think a lot of people have a lot to say about things and then fly off at the mouth sometimes when it's hard and it's so nuanced and the situations are complex and you're not really thinking about if that was you or your kids or your husband. Exactly,
0: exactly. And
1: I think there was a very strong
0: motivator for you coming out and speaking publicly about what happened for you, and that was it in 2020 when your sister passed away, which we spoke about a bit earlier. She had multiple experiences of abuse.
1: Yeah, so Alex is an example of, you know, and I am too, where you can develop mental health issues as a result of child sexual abuse and you're more predisposed to developing substance abuse issues. And those are uh, leave you more vulnerable to, in fact, future episodes of sexual violence again. And that is exactly what happened to Alex as a, a young woman, was that she was raped by a male relative, a different male relative, many years after she'd been abused by another male within the family, which, you know, I didn't find out about this until two weeks before she died. So she kept that a secret and for, well, the last sort of 10 years that I knew her, that was a secret that I just did not know that information. And I just found that I was just like, wow, that's unlikely that that would happen again, isn't it? But it's not, it's completely, you know, does happen, is more likely to happen to someone who already has a history of child sexual abuse. And I guess that made that complicates her recovery just a hundredfold, doesn't it? Like she gets to, through her teenage years, she's probably going to have issues, going to have a lot to deal with anyway due to having a history of like that chronic sexual abuse from the ages of we think like two to five, three to five or six. And then she was drunk, you get in a really vulnerable position and you're assaulted essentially again. By another family member. By another family member. So it's hard to imagine. It is. I get that. But these things do happen. And, yeah, I just think that made it just so hard for her to get a good chance at recovering. You know,
0: they're clearly for her the shame that went around, you know, with that with that, to be able to hold that for another 10 years silently for to herself, you know, mm. like not being able to talk about it. She's spoken about the first abuse instance but then whatever happened in that second instance she couldn't speak about it. So she held that silently and
1: suffered in silence. She actually never spoke about the abuse by our step-grandfather either beyond when she told mum. She used to tell me in text messages. Okay. She would only ever message things about that. And I remember one of the first conversations I had with mum about our abuse was actually when she was still alive. And I asked, my husband ended up in a conversation with someone who we sort of vaguely know. They're a friend, friend of the family. And they knew that I had been sexually abused, and Reese and I were just like, "Whoa, how does she know that?" And I went like back to mum. I drove over to mum's house, and I was just like, "Mum, did who knew? Who knows about this? This is weird mm. that uh, that this person would know." And she's like, "Mum was like taken aback. Obviously, also she just said that she didn't really know that it was widely known that he was a sleaze bag, but that." She doesn't know how these other people know. We now realise it's because my step-grandfather had lots of victims. And so lots of victims, lots of stories leaking out into the community and people put two and two together with my sister and I and assumed that it had also happened to us. So when Alex, when I went over to mum's house that day, Alex was home, she must have been home from... On holidays, I can't remember if she she was working by then as a vet. Anyway, she was around and I remember she was listening to our conversation but sort of going from room to room, like she was sort of going into the lounge room, coming back in, sort of she was listening but she she wasn't able to say anything. She never could really verbalise. She began verbalising in the years leading up to her death about the later rape. But, again, that was only yeah. after, like, drug overdose. So she's obviously impacted by those drugs. She's overdosing and she's, things are coming out that, you know, if she was not affected by drugs or sober, would she wouldn't be saying.
0: And to think that, you know, to have your sister's life end so tragically because of the harm that was she experienced as a young girl on a – well, late – early 20s, Mm -hmm. from males in her life that are meant to be safe and protect her, you know, and this is why we're having this conversation, right, to try and prevent this from happening anywhere else in the world. If, you know, looking back now, do you think if anyone's listening to this, what would you say to them if they've experienced sexual assault?
1: There are, if you're not ready to talk about it, like talking about it is one of the really effective ways of starting some kind of a recovery, having like retribution can be really effective in recovery. But there's other types of, you know, mediation you can go undergo without actually going into the courtroom where you can meet up with a perpetrator who is willing, which is, it is rare, but we did speak to a perpetrator on the, my podcast who had undergone mediation with his victims to help them in their recovery. There's therapies that don't involve actually verbalising it, so art therapies, yeah, things that are non-verbal, writing it down, those types of avenues. I just want people who have been sexually assaulted to know that they have options. They do have options to, you know, live with less pain or potentially live with no pain. I did actually say that to my sister before she died. I did say that because by the time – In the weeks leading up to her death, we knew that she was opioid dependent, sort of multi-substance abuse, but opioid dependent. We knew it was bad, like she was sort of a couple of weeks there, like under mum's supervision because we thought there was a risk of her taking her own life. And then she went to the job trial at the veterinary clinic in Newcastle. She'd been to her GP and she'd had her antidepressants, like prescription slightly changed. She was really upbeat about the job. Mum asked, did she want mum to go with her? And she said, you could, you could come with me or I don't mind. And mum just thought she'd like be, you know, she was going to this job trial for a week for this amazing job. Like it was, it was a really good opportunity. And she was really upbeat about it. So we thought it was okay to, for her to do that on her own. And then on the Thursday, she, we think all that week she was using the drugs from the clinic, the opioids that they had in the clinic, in the same way that she potentially had been essentially stealing it from other clinics that she worked at, which is not taking the whole vial. It's just drawing up a couple of mils that no one will notice And it's really, really strong stuff because it's for, you know, 500 kilo animals. She was an equine vet. So we know that she'd been doing that for the week and that on the Thursday, she has either made the decision to actually end it or that she's um, had a few factors that were going against her, that being... She'd been off them for a while because she hadn't had access. She hadn't been working. She came back from England during the pandemic. So she quit her job over there and was sort of like a couple of months between jobs so she wouldn't have had access to that type of drug. Um, And there's a real risk and they find that with people who've been in jail that you come back out of jail and you start using the same amounts of methadone, that's what she was stealing from the clinic, that your body hasn't built up the – resistance to that yet so that's possible also methadone has like a residual amount that it can stay in your body for a while and we're not sure if yeah the residual amounts from that week just built up to um i um, um, an amount that the her body couldn't tolerate and she passed away that night so yeah just devastating consequences i probably haven't really dealt with it properly because i've had really young kids and just been It's been, but we did really, mum and I want some kind of justice for her because, you know, one of her abusers is obviously passed on and he never was held accountable, but one of the perpetrators is still alive and we did in fact connect with other people who'd been impacted by him. And, yeah, so that was really helpful for us to know that he'd been operating that way for a while there were other people who he'd affected and we were kind of hopeful that there might be an avenue to pursue charges but you know people in their various stages of recovery have not been ready and we respect that absolutely
0: yeah yeah where you and your mum are at now mm. is you're ready for that but for them they might still be you know going through just even speaking about it for the first time oh, absolutely or even making sense of it in their world
1: Also, we're not the primary victim, you know, like Alex was the primary victim and she's no longer here. So we don't have that trauma related to rape that the other victims we're talking about, I'm assuming they would have. What would it mean for you if someone came forward? Well, that would be a huge kind of indirect justice for us. He will likely never be prosecuted for the rape of Alex because the witness is dead. So it would be an indirect course of justice that um, we would be seeking, which Mum and I just want for him to understand the damage that he did and has done multiple times and for him time to go rehabilitation and jail time to understand mm. yeah and to you know be accountable for his actions. because as it stands, he's been able to continue living his life with zero repercussions. And we find that, you know, with so many of these scenarios is that the victim is life is left in, you know, can be complete disrepair, tatters, you know, they can recover, they can recover maybe mostly, but the perpetrators just um, often get off scot-free and it's a real difficult thing to live with, isn't it? Just not having that closed circle of justice.
0: And what was the hardest part for you
1: speaking out and going and doing the podcast and interviewing people? Well, there were family members who I've become estranged from since doing that. That's the hardest thing is not having them in my life because they're not, they didn't do anything wrong. They're just related to him and now we all lose in that sense again. But I felt that it would be doing more harm leaving everything left unsaid and leaving future victims vulnerable to, you know, the same perpetrator or, you know, different perpetrators speaking more broadly. A lot more people will be hurt in the long run if we all remain silent. And, you know, I have to live with that pain of not having those people in my life, but I think that the greater good and the protection of my own children down the track by changing those cultural and social forces that stop people from getting help and enable predators to continue harming, um, for me, is worth it. And it really sucks that we have to wait for people to die, whether that be
0: the perpetrator or a victim to die to have these conversations, don't you think? That's the part that, you know, I, when I first listened to your podcast, I was like, oh, I I hate that. I hate that we have to wait for a fatality before we can speak up.
1: Yeah. And that is absolutely true because I had gone on a couple of occasions to have something published about the um, child sexual abuse that I'd experienced, but I knew that that identified Alex by association. So I actually didn't go ahead with writing, having those stories published when she was still here because, you know, she wasn't ready. I I know that she wasn't ready to be public about it. And I I know it would have also been more difficult if my nan was still alive to Mm. ask her those questions. She had dementia for quite some time in the lead up to her death. So by the time we'd started having these conversations, she was still alive, but you wouldn't have been able to ask her about these things. She wasn't in a position to... Mm answer so yeah mainly my nan passing on and my sister mum and I were just like well we can we are in a position where we can be public about it if my mum had have said I'm not okay with this I don't want you to do this I wouldn't have done it publicly
0: and have you already seen some movement happen by coming out and speaking publicly
1: Oh, we've had, you know, so many people contact the myself and the team who worked on the podcast about their own experiences of um, mainly sexual abuse within the family. It's just so much mm-hmm. more common than anyone would think. And it is a key thing that has been missing from all the mainstream coverage of um, sexual violence that, We've seen go through the roof in recent years is that people still within families are not having these conversations because there's so many people like that will be impacted by that, that like they are immediately involved with. And that is a huge barrier to the conversations. Absolutely. I can speak first firsthand to that. You
0: know, I spoke to a commercial publisher not so long ago about publishing my story, and they were like, "Yes, absolutely." And then they came back and said, "We can't, your perpetrators are still alive." That was, you know, that was the answer, and I was like, "What?" And then, uh, you know, whether to even talk publicly on a podcast about it, I am so aware of the perpetrators' children. You know, like uh. the influence and the impact that it's going to have on them. So it does. It's like this spiderweb when it's when it's in the family. There's this whole spiderweb of people that will be affected every time someone speaks up. But we've got to stop that silence. We need to find a way.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I think by being public about the sexual abuse occurring within the family is part of that and certainly most of the people who reached out to us it was within the family and they really jumped at that because they're like wow I've never had you know an outside example of this happening to somebody else like I thought it was just me and my weirdo family but it's not it's completely not and family is and within close social circles, so close family friends, there's such a high level of trust within those circles that it is easy for the perpetrators to offend in those situations. They don't have to spend time gaining the trust of anybody. They don't really have to spend much time grooming. It's already like an inherent trust is there and they can just, you know, do what they like. We've had, a few also really good points come out of the having done the podcast, which is really we need much better understanding of the motivations of child sexual abuse and sexual assault to to prevent it. But nobody's asking the perpetrators what's going on with them because, I mean, all too often we have this knee jerk, which is completely warranted um, like emotional response to abuse where we just hate the perpetrator and feel angry towards them which is natural but you know we need to you know feel that and then come back to that in a sense and really start conversations about what can we do to ensure the perpetrators get help pre-offending even once they've started offending to help enable them to stop and the research is lacking in that. We don't have research on what works as well, or perpetrators don't have access to someone that can help. The research studies about victims outnumber perpetrators ten to one. So we look into mm-hmm. we've we've looked in extensively to what happens to the victims and what the impacts of that are, which is important, really important to understand that, the impacts. But we just haven't looked into we have, but to a much smaller extent looked into psychologically profiling, understanding the motivation, understanding these people don't just wake up one morning and feel like, you know, masturbating a child. It's been many forks Mm. in the road over a long period of, you know, cultural influence, guidance, mental health issues. I am going to say mental health issues. I know it's controversial. I just don't think these people spring from the earth. Um, perverted.
0: And I also think if we were to look at the research of the perpetrators is how many, how much of that research is actually within family as well. You know, often the research will be around people that have already been convicted and that quite often isn't family abuse.
1: Yeah. These cases aren't going through the courts as much within the the ones within families. There's just just that added barrier Mm -hmm. of these being a parent, someone that you, you know, on the one hand, you still love them. It's a very conflicting situation mm. and on the other hand, they've been so horrible and caused you so much pain. You're going to be hurting, well, not you, but this abuse hurts people immediate, in the immediate family just by association and the, I think victims when they're coming out and deciding what to do and whether to pursue justice really factor that in and, you know, most of the time I think people just want less hurt around them so they just think that just to not act on that is the best force of action for them. And look, it could be that way for a lot of people because people aren't sometimes ready to, you know, go to court about this. But it's just considering also like the long-term harm to yourself and also potentially other people and whether you are in a position to act to change that is really worth considering.
0: And before we wrap up today, I was thinking, have
1: you found some resources along the way that you've personally found really helpful? It's very hodgepodge. I've picked up bits and pieces here, sometimes from friends who are psychologists, sometimes from my own psychologist, some of it from Braveheart, which is one of the leading child protection organisations. Some of it, I just trawl Google on the internet and find studies But it's really hodgepodge. I personally feel that new parents at the hospital level should be given, you know, proper guidance and information in this space. Like we get quizzed about domestic violence when you leave the hospital and, you know, people are sort of getting to that level where they're aware of that and and sort of trying to intercept those women um, when they're coming through the hospital having babies, which is a great initiative and wonderful. But I think we can apply those same principles to while women are in the hospital system having their children, equipping them with the knowledge of the prevalence, like this is a real risk. This is one in five children before Mm. they reach the age of 18 who are going to experience some kind of sexual harm. And we are testing for rare, rare genetic disorders in the hospital with newborn screenings and deafness and things like that, which is all well and good. But, you know, at the same time, we need to be giving, equipping parents with this information.
0: Definitely. And one of the things that I said to someone the other day was it wouldn't it be great if we had, and this isn't the right name for it, but sexual assault first aid like we do for mental health first aid. Like imagine if we had a one-day course that we could just roll out across the whole country to get everyone equipped.
1: That is a great idea. Love the way you're thinking. (laughs) We should do it. Harm minimization. (laughs) Yeah, it's harm minimization. And I think we're still not clear on that. I'm still not clear on that. What would my first thing be that I would do if I found out that my kids had been sexually abused and I don't know, I'm not sure. I need a pamphlet.
0: Absolutely. It's a great place to start. We need more resources in this space. And so just to finish up, because we've covered quite a lot today and, you know, I will pull it all together at the end in our summary, but I guess, is there anything that I haven't asked you today or anything that's sitting there close to your heart that you want to say before we finish?
1: I just want to echo what you said about believing people. So I probably do know what I would do if I became aware that my child had been harmed in a sexual way and that is that I would believe them you know make them feel absolutely unequivocally believed in that situation help them understand that what's happened to them was was wrong and that they're not there, they weren't at fault and to as best possible remove that child from the perpetrator whether that be just through you, you know, you, you within your power to remove the child from that perpetrator doesn't necessarily mean going through the court system. But if you can do that, if I could do that, that would be very much a consideration is having that perpetrator held accountable.
0: The other two things that I'd add on to that is let the child know that you're going to pass on information if you are. So, if, you, if you're if you having a conversation with a child and you are going to go and tell someone, let them know so that their trust isn't broken again, but also record it. Write it down. Write down the conversation that you had with the child. Write down every single thing because the, as we spoke about in the very beginning of this podcast, the memory is fragmented. Ours, theirs so write it down store it somewhere safe send yourself an email have it on record so that if one day they decide to do something about it and today's not the day the information is stored absolutely that is great thank you (laughs) that's a great idea Mm. yeah and my my last question for you is I always love to wrap up the podcast with who in your
1: world truly makes you belly laugh Oh, oh it's a my best mate from school and her husband who's also my best mate from school, they are hilarious pair and I, I laugh hardest <laughs> around them. Yeah, no, they're great. She's actually in the podcast, mill. She was um, the first per- person I disclosed to Aww. as an adult and um, she was just wonderful. She was just like fully believed me, fully didn't treat me any different. Like, no, they sort of let me bring it up if I wanted to bring it up but they didn't really, you know, people didn't – didn't really talk about it unless I wanted to talk about it and I was so lucky in that sense to have friends like that I mean I don't think people are doing anything wrong when they you know especially young kids when you know they might react potentially in the wrong way it's just that we didn't know any better but I certainly within my friendship group just Mm -hmm. had lovely people who were like Oh, just believed me and were like, wow, we didn't know, sorry. And God, that must have been hard. And it still is hard,
0: right? Like I still want to say and acknowledge this space, you know, you have created a podcast, you have come out publicly, but I, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but I can almost assure that this conversation is still hard going in and having this difficult, like they might get a little bit easier, but it's still exposing your most vulnerable
1: moments right yeah it is I think I've just really I outweigh that with when you lose someone like that close so or like devastatingly it's like losing someone to a preventable disease you know how a lot of people go into like prevention Mm. work and you know fundraising and cancer research and those sorts of things you actually you feel a little tiny that's the only relief you get is trying to make the situation better, trying to change the situation mm. so that that didn't have to happen again. In actual fact, it gives me an out, pouring an out and a way to get to some relief is that you feel like you're making a positive difference.
0: Different parts of this episode may have resonated with you or perhaps this is the first time you've had a conversation or heard a conversation like this. I want to encourage each and every one of you, as our challenges that change us community, to find the courage to see it, to hear it and to support people going through it. Virginia Tapscott is so brave, braver than me. She is on a quest to uncover her family's darkest truth and shine a light on the secrets in all families. Let's help her raise awareness to this please jump on her podcast, my sister's secrets and help us have an impact on those horrific statistics that we spoke about at the beginning. Also, don't forget to jump on right now and book your place in our personality and performance workshop. It's coming up on the 30th of August and 1st of September, but there is limited spaces. I will also add it to our challenges that changes Facebook group, where you can find the link. And as always, Thank you for being such an amazing community and getting behind this podcast. You guys are the best. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.